could babysit one celebrity who would have been. <laughs> right off the bat. Right off the bat. Could babysit one celebrity. Yeah. Um, like, is this something where I'm going to be getting, like, enjoyment out of it? Is this no, you just like... have to babysit them. Well, surely I would go for a celebrity who's, like, really easy to babysit. Like who? No Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> um, I feel like Robert Downey Jr. would be really hard to babysit for some reason. All right. Not early 2000s Robert Downey Jr. Oh. Yeah, he'd be a bit of a nightmare, wouldn't he? You got no answer then? Uh, no, I, I... Too difficult. You know what's weird is that, like, immediately after you asked that question, like, Tom Cruise popped into my head. <laughs> <laughs> like, immediately it was just, like, for some reason Tom Cruise just came into my head. I don't know why. Maybe maybe it's kind of, like, the almost, like, child energy that he gives off with how short he is, but... Five foot four. Yeah. Right. Welcome to the Uncut Podcast. My name's Louis Edwards. I'm sitting six inches away from Benjamin David Leslie Cobb. I've literally just met this guy like ten minutes ago. <laughs> Shall we introduce the format? Yeah. How sure. we're going to do things? Yeah, sure. Um, well, we've been friends for... Coming up this September, we've been friends for five and a half years. Six. Six years, sorry. Six years this September. Um, and, yeah, I think pretty much our entire friendship was built... Off of talking about films. Yeah. Because we used to think we were fucking men. We were both nerdy little white boys studying film at A-level. Yeah. It's quite a revolutionary uh, thing we've got going on here. Two white <laughs> men t- in a room talking about films. It's never been done before. Eat your, eat your heart out, Roger Ebert. Yeah. But, yeah. um... No, the, um... I guess the we've been wanting to do something like this for a while because we're, we're both, like... We're both into films. Yeah. We're on the same course. We live with each other. We talk about films for three hours every night. Then. We just thought it might be a good idea, essentially, just to, to try and actually like turn it into something. Profit off it. Profit off it, yeah. And, and basically just turn it into, like, I don't know, something. And I don't think either of us give a shit if anyone actually even listens to this. No, I literally could not care less. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah that's that's our that's, that's our why we started statement. It. The format for the episodes are basically going to be we pick an idea, something to do with cinema, obviously. Mm-hmm. We both go away and research it. Trying not to research the same things, yeah. and then we come back and try and blow each other's fucking brains out with information. <laughs> yeah, so um, I guess we should go ahead and Crack introduce on. the introduce the first episode, the, first. the official first episode of <laughs> Uncut Podcast. Uncut Podcast. Two the white men in a room talking about films in a room. Yeah. Right. The first episode is going to be on lost films. So they have to be lost and they have to be films. Yeah, I've um, I think we kind of decided upon this subject because we were both kind of, you know, we were initially gonna go for a different subject, which we will keep a secret for now. <laughs> and um, uh, we were trying to think about things to do for a uh, first episode, and I think I think it was me who just suggested the idea of doing lost films, um. Because, I mean, speaking personally here, like, lost media and, and, you know, like, research and, you know, not just films, but just lost media in general, really... Anything with a story. Yeah, like, it really kind of... The whole idea of lost films kind of just excites us. <laughs> not that excited way. by lost films. No, it really does. I think the, the whole, like, you know... I, I guess with lost films, right, it's more... It's so it's kind of set aside from, um, from you know basic film criticism because 
you know, it doesn't even fucking matter what the film is. Like, it doesn't matter if the film's a piece of garbage. The whole... I'll get on to that. The whole interest, the whole interest of the film is because it's, it's just by the nature of it being lost, by the fact that people cannot in any way, shape or form, you know, see the film it's or like know what it is. It's like anything that's lost. There's always yeah. like a almost a conspiracy conspiracy around it. The sense of intrigue essentially just comes from the the very fact that the films are lost. So it does kind of set itself aside from like film criticism in general yeah. because usually obviously you're talking about you know how good a film is, whether the performances are good, you know all the bullshit that comes with like film criticism. Yeah. But with lost films, you know it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't matter. No. It doesn't matter if the films can't like, exactly criticize the mise en scène in a film that doesn't <laughs> exist. Exactly, because there's no way of viewing it. So um, we thought it would be a pretty good. Yeah. Um, I think it'd be a good idea as well to introduce what defines a lost film first and foremost. Yeah, sure. I've got like three things from what my research entailed Go on. on what is a lost film. There's three different ways a film can get lost, basically. Either it was destroyed purposefully, mm-hmm. and this can be like... by It's something that studios used to do back in the 1920s called wholesale junkying, okay. where to make room in a studio before they you know, started making more films, mm-hmm. they'd just burn everything mm-hmm. just to basically make room because cinema back then wasn't seen as a... So this is like in like the silent... This is silent area. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was, you know, when a film was destroyed on purpose. So sometimes a filmmaker hated a film so much that he saw the only out... The only thing he could do was literally get rid of it. Yeah. And within the destruction thing, it was also accidental. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, uh, we kind of looked at similar things, actually, because... Um, Yes, a lot of the like silent era films, even like some of like the early talkies and stuff like that. A lot of it, the medium was kind of you know in its adolescence, so it was people still kind of viewed film as a medium which was very similar to like a stage play. Yeah, and once a stage play ended, there was no like DVD, there was no there reason was no DVD of it. So. Exactly, there's no reason to continue the stage play once it's it's gone. You know, people come see the stage play, the stage play. You know. I don't know what runs the for yeah, it runs it for however long it stops and then that's it, 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 it yeah. it's, it's done essentially and it'll only get resurrected if the stage play comes back in whatever form it might come back yeah. in, as such you know, film preservation wasn't really taken very seriously not until the 50s really no not until the, the 50s and so, so a lot of filmmakers weren't too precious about the fact it was kind of like the film gets made it gets distributed it runs in theatres and then it just gets destroyed and then move on to because why the filmmakers kind of like thought at the time was like why continue it well there's no TV exactly like why continue it if there's if there's a new film around the corner that's going to be just as big and make just as money just as much money sorry well the other way that a film could be lost as well is if it was genuinely lost like you misplace the only reel of a film that exists yeah. and but, it but genuinely gets lost. But that's the thing, the films, uh, films <laughs> of that era, like people make duplicates as well. Like people make like, that's how a lot of films end up surviving. Um, and, and you know, you mentioned as well, like a lot of the time, like though was, it was purely accidental. Um, and when a film, you know, when, when, when like, uh, Films obviously at that time were kept in like generally kept in like vaults because obviously you had the canisters of the films you had the original like master yeah. films, and they were on the the films that were preserved and they weren't intentionally thrown out like we mentioned they were often just kept in these big vaults yeah, and they deteriorate so quickly. Well, that's the thing. Film 
initially the the actual like product itself the film yeah. was made with and i will consult my research here <laughs> it was it's referred to as silver nitrate essentially or like nitrate film nitrocellulose is the uh, is the uh, buzzword of of the podcast nitrocellulose film essentially that won't be mentioned again <laughs> Well, nitrocellulose film essentially was what it was. What was silver nitrate was in the film stock, and the thing about silver nitrate is that it's extremely flammable. Yeah, I read that it was compared to literally like a bomb. Yeah, like, like, that's how easily it would go up in flames. That's the thing. Silver nitrate, once it's um, it's very easily combustible, and once and once it's the the combustion starts and the film actually starts burning, it essentially I I think I've 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 got it down here. Essentially, like. Yeah, produces its own oxygen supplies of burns. So it burns rapidly and it can't be extinguished. And when one piece of film catches fire... Is it in napalm? I have no idea. I actually idea. think it might be in napalm. I have no idea. But <laughs> but once once it does catch fire, essentially if you've got a vault full of this uh, nitrate stock, then it's just going to set the whole vault on fire. Yeah. And um, essentially you're losing like tons and tons of films well, the studios used to use that though because there was this silent film star you could you, you could compare to like the new leonardo dicaprio of today but called fatty roscoe fatty roscoe yeah it's a fucking awful name yeah. but this guy was like a bit of a trigger warning here this guy was accused of rape and murder mm. of a woman and mm. when it was the silent film era and the studio basically to distance himself from him completely destroyed every single film role they had of anything with them in. That's one way they just to set him on fire. It's, like, it's not like, set him on fire. <laughs> set it on fire. It's like an early version of like, cancelling. It's like <laughs> early cancel culture. It's not a hashtag, it's just setting up all his films <laughs> yeah. in flame. Yeah. This, like, there's a couple of early examples of stuff like that. Deplatformed. Where <laughs> set on fire. <laughs> the Salem film trials. <laughs> there's a couple of early like examples of when studios used to do I mentioned before like wholesale junking yeah which was literally the practice of getting rid of films to make space for others mm-hmm. but then like there's films I guess this kind of segues into one of my major films that I looked at where they were it was a genuine accident that they set up in flames as so I'm gonna London after midnight mm-hmm. directed by I think it was Todd Browning is the, yeah it is Todd Browning is this the MGM the, the MGM and Volt, yeah yeah because they had like London after midnight was direct it was made in 1927 by Todd Browning, who used to collaborate with a guy called Lon Chaney. He also did the... Todd Browning also did the Dracula film. Did he? I believe, yes. And um, with the one with Bela Lugosi. Oh, the famous one. Yeah, yeah. With Lon Browning... Lon Browning. <laughs> <laughs> Lon Chaney, who is, like, known as one of the early horror men, along with, like, Bela Lugosi and stuff. you do all his own makeup. He had this famous box that was called Lon, Lon Chaney's Box of Makeup, where he do all his own makeup, he'd come up with his own character, he'd meet with people who had experienced vampires. He's like a real star as yeah, well. Yeah, he was huge. His, his son also went on to become a huge actor as well. Yeah. He, he played the Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr. Did he? Yeah. But basically, London After Midnight, which is, it's it's based off a book Todd Browning wrote as well, or a short story that. called The Hypnotist. Because okay. Lon Chaney plays both characters. He plays the man in the beaver hat, which is, the vampire, yeah. and he plays the detective of Scotland Yard, and that film was really popular. It was the it had a budget of one hundred fifty thousand dollars at the time and made one point six million dollars, yeah. which back at the time, it's a fucking it's a lot of money yeah, for yeah, yeah. back then. Like I think one point six is now equivalent to sixteen million, 
Yeah. And considering that less people went to the cinema, less people had money to be able to go to the cinema. Yeah. It was still seen as a bit of a highbrow form of entertainment. Yeah. Like that film is why is that like film has always been regarded as the most wanted lost film. It's pretty much like the holy grail. It is, yeah. It's like the holy grail of, of lost, like lost films. It's probably a good one to start with as well. Like. Yeah. BFI have a list. They're like the BFI most wanted mm. of like lost films, and London After Midnight is the top one. But that what wasn't lost until nineteen sixty five. Yeah. They had a the master tape, which yeah. they like which they hadn't remastered yet because they in nineteen sixty five you couldn't we didn't have the technology like we do now to be able to take, you know, this piece of shit grainy film and turn it into a four K fucking Scorsese film. But but that's the thing though, yeah, <laughs> they did have the technology to make duplicates. Which which is makes me think that there's something that, that out there that there's the potential that London after midnight that there is a copy that exists out there somewhere. Well, there's been a reconstructed version by a guy called Rick Stiblin. For Turner Classics. Turner Classics, yeah. yeah. 2003, I believe it was released. I think you might be right with 2003. But the thing about that's most interesting about London After Midnight is, like you were saying before, there's this kind of, like, like allure around lost films. Mm -hmm. You know, people become, like, hyper-obsessed with them. Goth and metal bands get obsessed with their imagery, specifically London After Midnight. Mm Mm-hmm. And it becomes almost like this culture of obsession mm-hmm. behind trying to find these lost films. It doesn't matter how good the film is. No, I mean, like... the reviews of London After Midnight weren't great. People said it was the worst collaboration between Todd Browning and Lon Chaney because they'd done quite a few films together. Yeah. But this film gained so much of attraction from being lost that in... I don't actually think I've got the date written down, <laughs> but <laughs> I thought I did. Yeah. They found a film poster and they found a couple stills. Yeah. And the the film poster went to auction and it sold for it's like five hundred thousand, four hundred seventy eight thousand dollars. But it was sold to a mystery bidder, and for ages no one knew who it was. And then it got revealed that it was Kirk Hammett <laughs> <Yeah>. from Metallica. <laughs> like this <laughs> dude who has a bone guitar yeah. bought the London After Midnight poster, but. That film is still lost. We were talking about the other day, like, Kirk Hammett's absolutely obsessed with... Yeah, with that whole genre is. Yeah. Because he he uses, like, a a, uh, guitar with, like, the the Universal Mummy film of the 1930s. Yeah. With um, Boris Karloff. And um, he has... He has that, uh, he has that like guitar with all like, the graphics and stuff, and he has like a bunch of like guitars and stuff like that, which all have like classic movie posters on it and stuff. Yeah. So of course he fucking. I mean, he has the the money. I mean, Metallica, yeah. not a band, a brand. <laughs> that's a, that's your opinion. It's not an original opinion. No, but the thing is, as well, in two thousand and eight, there was this like early days of internet. You had a lot of forums for horror. Yeah. Specific specifically horror films, and London After Midnight was one of the ones people would talk about, and there'd be rumors about people finding it, and this guy. Who isn't his real name, but he went by the internet name Sid Terror. Okay. Said in 2008 that. Real name? Sid Terror. Maybe it was christened Sid Terror. His yeah. dad was Don Terror. Mm. He said in 2008 that he'd spotted, spotted mm. another copy, but it got misplaced mm, in the UCLA film archives. Of course. So that's the last known, like, idea whether London After Midnight exists. At this point. If some in this day and age as well, with the way that information works and the way that information spread, if someone found a copy of London After Midnight, it would instantly be, you know, like digitized, you know, uploaded to the internet. There yeah. would be like this huge. Th- I can't imagine there's a dude in fucking like the Czech Republic who has a copy of London After Midnight. No. It's just like sitting on it like a that like, happens though. like a penguin on an egg. That happens. You know what I mean? It does. I guess it does happen, but like. 
you know, I mean, I think just like in this day and age, it's just not possible for like, you know, the film has such a huge like notoriety. Yeah, if someone had it, they could sell it for like millions now. Exactly. They they would, that would be more straight into their bank account. You know what I mean? If I found London After Midnight, I'd be going straight on eBay. Yeah. Original cover retro. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of weird though, like you know that this film was like fully you know, just fully existed right up until 1965 and wasn't like, and then from 1965 onwards, it was just gone potentially yeah. forever, you know? Well, we like, talk about it like in terms of, you know, films specifically from the end of the silent era, the beginning of the talkie era, mm-hmm. like Martin Scorsese's film foundation estimates that 90% of films made before 1933 just do not exist anymore. And it's just fucking sad. It's just really sad, you know, because, up at night. <laughs> yeah, literally, but but like, it it is sad because it, it it's that was such a although it was in its infancy, the medium was in such a like a. I mean, you watch a lot of silent films now, and although, you know, I mean, it, it could easily be said that a lot of them don't necessarily stand the test of time. That silent films. So there's a few. Yeah, of course, but like you know, silent. A lot of people who are into silent films. Yeah. Are. More than likely going to be like film aficionados they're into the idea yeah you're not gonna you're not gonna get like <laughs> no one's gonna bring some girl home from a date <laughs> yeah, and yeah, be yeah. like oh do you want to watch this special copy of Metropolis I've got it they're really puts think, you in the mood they're gonna think who's this fucking guy <laughs> this bro fucking dickhead should have spot the signs of the little gold earring yeah this dude probably wears a folded beanie <laughs> I'm looking at you I'm looking at you bro <laughs> you've got the folded beanie <laughs> silent film club bro um <laughs> um no, but but it is sad though because it is such a it's it's such an interesting time in film history as well. Like yeah, um, we just don't even know the names of how like if you, know. you think ninety percent of films before nineteen thirty three don't exist anymore, we probably only know of the ones that have some. Like what from what I've found when researching this and looking at loads of different sources, is that most of the lost films that people talk about, you know, the big boys, mm-hmm. they have a story behind it. There's a reason why people talk about these lost films is because yeah. either the pl- something about the plot's interesting, someone died in suspicious circumstances, yeah. you know, something about it makes that film have a story. Whereas there's probably tons of fucking, like, crime dramas, early age of Hollywood, kind of Sunset Boulevard kind of even though that is obviously not lost, but that yeah. type of style of yeah. Hollywood golden actress, there's probably tons of them. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's like, because um, obviously you mentioned, like, we, we said before about, like, and I was talking about how, like, sometimes lost films are only really popular because of the fact, the very fact that they're lost. Yeah. But, you know, you're kind of right about the whole, like, idea of, like, a lost film actually being in the public conscience, you know, the public conscience, sorry, um, because it has something and i think a lot of the reason why a lot of lost films are in the public consciousness is because there's some artifact like you said about the yeah. london after midnight poster you know um or there's just something that continues the legacy of said film you know yeah. what i mean but there's there's probably so many films that have sweet fuck all in terms of um artifacts that actually prove that this film even existed like um there's a bunch of yeah, Phantom of Racist, there's a bunch of Dracula films, right, apparently, that predated the Universal, the 1930 Todd Brown. Are these Universal. the ones from, like, 1913? A bit later than that. Um, so the early, apparently, the earliest recorded Dracula film is from 1920, and apparently it is, uh, it's Russian, 
and apparently like this there's debate as to whether this exists because it's exactly what I was saying before. There exists no artifact of this. It's, it's merely just hearsay. It's, yeah, it's merely just sort of like passed on through word of mouth, essentially. But the earliest recorded Dracula film, where there's evidence that the film even existed, was a film called Dracula's Death from 1921. God, straight, the first film straight up Death of Dracula. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but here's the thing. Here's the funny thing about this. Bram Stoker and his estate. Now, Bram Stoker was... I don't know when he died, but he, he's... The dude's dead. Yeah, dude's dead as fuck. Point. Dude's dead as fuck at this point, <laughs> right? But his estate carries on his legacy. Yeah, so yeah. Bram Stoker, when he wrote the original Dracula novel in, I don't know, some, sometime in the 1800s. I don't actually know the dude's original publishing date. He's long gone. Everyone he know, knew and loved is long gone. They're all dead. But anyway, his, his uh, legacy, I guess you could say, was continued by his widow and um, I guess his, like, his heirs, like his estate. Yeah. And initially he put a copyright on the Dracula name, like the, the, the character, the light, using the likeness of the yeah. character, which I guess was kind of like a smart move. But, but what's weird is that now we kind of view Dracula as such like a, you know, it's, it's part of like just... I guess modern culture. I guess he's just yeah. ingrained within modern culture. It's like you wouldn't think that the character of Dracula is now copyright, like is it copyrighted. Well, I guess it's probably come out of. It's in public domain yeah, now. Yeah, now I it's think. come out of the copyright. But anyway, the, the Dracula's death um, was essentially because obviously they couldn't use the copyright for for the character of Dracula. This film from nineteen twenty one apparently was about a man in an insane asylum. It's kind of it follows this woman apparently. It follows <laughs> this woman. And it was, there's going to be a lot of apparentlys in this. Yeah. It follows a woman who falls. Who kind of? I think she falls in love with this guy, dude who lives in an insane asylum. Who essentially believes he's Dracula. The dude thinks he's Dracula. That's quite meta. Yeah, it's like, it's essentially a way of getting around the copyright. Getting it's around not the copyright. Just the Dracula. Because yeah. you could reference the book. Yeah. You couldn't. Get, you couldn't copyright strike so it's not like youtube now yeah with it the um this i I should say as well dracula's death is also a hungarian film as well not russian yeah which is funny actually because i believe um uh where was where was dracula originally was it was it hungary transylvania that's where it's set in yeah i don't where is Transylvania? I don't fucking know. I don't know. Anyway, it's not yeah. a geography podcast. But uh, apparently this film was distributed only in Europe and obviously Dracula is a very European yeah. story. Um, which kind of makes it quite like funny that he still had to like dodge all of this yeah. copyright as well. Um, but yeah, apparently this, this is one of the first recorded Dracula films um, that we actually fully can confirm existed. I think the only thing that exists is like a couple of... Yeah. Um, like screenshots, like a couple of like stills from really, the film. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of things. Like there's a the reason I thought they were from 1913 because uh, there's you know, you know the whole Universal started basically the whole idea of a movie universe. Yeah, you know with their monsters. Mm-hmm. You had Frankenstein, Dracula. What's it? What was that werewolf dude called? Um, the Wolfman. The Wolfman. Yeah. The, well, the, that was everyone claims that to be the first werewolf film. Mm-hmm. But there was a film dated in 1913, which was... I heard about this. I literally think it's like a minute and a half long. It's not even that long. It's like a short. It is like, well, back then that would have been... Fil- films like of that period, there wasn't many feature-length films from that time right. as well. Like... There's like There was one which was known as that, but I've got that to talk about. But this werewolf film has all the iconography of the typical werewolf film and it buys into a lot of like the myths and the... no one knows who directed it. They say it came out in 1913, but different sources say 13, 12, 15. Yeah. And it's basically like the first werewolf film, but it is, because it's so old, completely gone. 
there's one resolved. film still that is like is left. Yeah. And it's just a crowd of people circling around what looks like a werewolf, but it could just be a man as a dog. <laughs> like, because it's, you know, it's 1913. Yeah. This is like the first ever, like... So I don't actually know this. I don't know if, like, the Wolfman or, like, the fo- folklore behind the Wolfman is, like, an actual, like, you know, like, it was an actual, like, written thing, like, whether it was actually in the public consciousness. But there's like, similar prior, stuff. I guess you, know you what could I mean? say, like, there's, like, Bigfoot and Chupacabra. They're kind of similar. Yeah. Just big, hairy men. Big, large, hairy Sasquatches. There's stuff like that in all, like, Mexican culture has quite a lot of hairy forest dwellers mm. not as people just as myths because <laughs> it, de- it definitely didn't I mean the idea of the werewolf definitely didn't start with the wolfman no universal film werewolves have been around for a long time actually this segs perfectly onto uh, my next one actually that I want to talk about um, the very very first universal horror film is missing is it? yeah so everyone thinks it was Dracula which was at the very the one that kicked off the whole. Who played Dracula in that one? Bella Lugosi. Was that Bella Lugosi? Yeah, yeah. I always think that he, did. He, did he just completely interrupt? Did he do an Italian Dracula as well? We'll get on to that. <laughs> let's let's talk. Let's let's save that. Actually, let's save that. Um, <laughs> but this film uh, came out the same year as Dracula, so it's nineteen thirty, and it's called The Cat Creeps. The Cat Creeps. The Cat Creeps. Why the one with Dracula? <laughs> <laughs> and um, essentially, The Cat Creeps is a remake. Uh, a sound remake of uh, a film, a silent film called The Cat and the Canary from uh, 1928. Um, in this film, essentially, it was kind of like a um, sort of murder mystery sort of thing where um, I haven't actually seen The Cat and the Canary, so I don't know much about it, but it's to my knowledge and from my research that it's essentially like a... Uh, yeah, like that a film slaps. You know what? That film slaps. <laughs> Cat and the Canary is so good. Yeah, it's like fucking amazing, bro. <laughs> I'm going to invite my girl around and uh, watch, <laughs> watch Cat, Cat and the Canary. Um, but the the film is essentially like a like a sort of murder mystery thing going on. Well, most films were back then. Yeah, and then it was like a like a haunted house thing almost. as well, like House on the Hill sort of uh, yeah. thing going on. And um, the film, like I said, is technically the very first like universal film. But there was also... Another version of the film that was released. Um, there was a Spanish version, which is commonplace, as we said before, about the Spanish Dracula. Um, it was quite commonplace at the time to record uh, a Spanish... like Rather than having to use the same film and then dub it, which was yeah. a lot of effort, and get all the actors in and stuff like that, they essentially just shot one version of the film usually during the day, which was like the English language version, which would be more popular. Yeah. And then they shot the Spanish version at night, similar to like how Dracula was I read about this, I think, yeah. Yeah, and both of those are lost. Both of them are lost, completely lost. Well, there were different directors as well, from what I read as well, that they'd have the main universal employed director would do the, like, you know, English-speaking language one. Let's have a look, actually. And then you'd have a different director do the... Usually Spanish or Italian because they had a big audience for that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not actually sure. I'm just having a look at the cat creep Spanish version. We'll consult our researcher. Yeah. <laughs> um, with Cimitemacy films. No, it was the same director. 
It was oh, um, fuck my info then. It was actually two directors. It was John Willard. Or actually, no. I mean, like it could be both, like John Willard or something, or Rupert Julian could have done. Usually, they have more than one director for films like that, though. Anyway, I suppose Universal yeah. used to employ quite. A, I mean, just film history. You didn't have like directors. They were mm. employees of the studios. Mm. So the studios would have a team of writers. They'd write a film, and then they'd go to one of the stooges which was a director and be like make this exactly how we fucking want it it was all kind of like a yeah that's how you con- ended with Kubrick yeah and uh, it's called Kirk Douglas Michael's his son yeah Kirk nice Douglas. guy yeah. great guy yeah I know him personally yeah I do he's our sponsor for this episode as well <laughs> thank you Kirk Douglas thank you Kirk Douglas I'm glad you're still holding on dude he died <laughs> <laughs> dude's dead as fuck I'm sure Kirk Douglas is dead. dead let's have a look I'm sure he died. I swear to God, if I just fabricated this. Nah, he's dead. Yeah, I thought so. He died in 2020. Rest in power. The dude was born in 1916 and he died in 2020, so that makes him 94. God. Dude lived through World War II and he still got to see someone say girl boss. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> As if he was paying much attention to it. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but anyway, let's get back to the cat creeps. The cat creeps. Um, so yeah, both the Spanish version and the English language version are completely gone. Completely, yeah. The film was remade in the forties. Um, I think it was called the same thing, the Cat Creeps. Um, they resurged their Universal Horror franchise, and by the looks of it, every like ten or fifteen years, they yeah. remake it. Yeah. And um, this this new version again, I've I've not seen this new version either. Um, a little bit of the film exists though so it's just like a most of it's lost a little bit exists type situation. no it's pretty much like universally hey it's fun there it's pretty much like completely like gone aside from like a few second clips and apparently these clips only existed because they were featured in like a comedy like a, like a horror based comedy thing called boo from the 1930s which was like a um i guess it had like a narrator and, and it would use like stock footage from yeah. other films and stuff like that and it um I, I again i don't know what boo the i don't know what the fuck boo is it's like it's essentially just a from my knowledge it's just like a sort of like a comedy hack thing. together anthology comedy thing yeah yeah with like a narrator and stuff like that and it's all like horror based and stuff and that came out in like 1932 and um and the only footage and they so they used footage from the cat creeps and then just implemented it into boo and that's the only reason it exists. And that's the only reason that these small Somehow exist. Boo still exists, but a universal horror film doesn't. Apparently, yeah. And and obviously people are people are like run rave about that. I mean, you know, you look at lists of like top ten lost horror films and stuff like that, it always manages to make the list, but See when I was looking at before you mentioned like films that predated almost silent cinema were only like a minute long, like you've got the Great Train Robbery was ten minutes. Yeah. The Lumiere Brothers, Trip to the Moon. I don't know how long that was. I have actually seen that, though. Uh, was that a Lumiere Brothers? Was it, it was I mean, I'm doing a film podcast. I should probably fucking know yeah. if it's the Lumiere Brothers or not. Trip to the Moon is John Mel- John Mel- uh, George Melies. Oh, it's George Melies. George the Melies, Lumiere Brothers yeah. were something else. Yeah. I just got, they're both fucking French. So. <laughs> <laughs> it just got confused in my head. But 1906, there was a film called The Story of the Kelly Gang. And this was directed by an Australian businessman. He wasn't a director. Dude just had tons of money. Bought film equipment. Wanted to buy into the whole... He basically wanted to buy... Australia in 1906, like, America was going through 
no, it was just before the Great Depression, 1906, so it was, you know, it was still in quite a prosperous economic time. Not politically, but economically. Still before the First World War. Yeah, economically they were doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. And so Australia didn't have that. There wasn't a cinema scene in Australia, but this businessman called Charles Tate, who died in 1933, uh, he basically wanted to make a film about crime. And he specifically wanted to document the exploits of the Kelly Gang, who were this famous outlaws they just steal shit murder people run away and that was their whole life you know there was, it was big back then and he was obsessed with this so he made this film with all his own money and it was the first feature length film mm. it's not the first film with a narrative how long was it it was an hour long and this was 1906 1200 meters of film everyone always talks about uh what's his name dw griffiths yeah uh Birth of a Nation being like one of the first sort of feature-length films, which was like three hours long. It's one of the first like American feature-length films, yeah. yeah. But this was 1906, and it was basically the dude made it, and it's a complete, like, there's about 17... It was lost for a very long time, and it probably should still be considered lost because there is only about 17 minutes that remain. But they toured the world with this film as the world's longest film. <laughs> they went to Australia, New Zealand, Britain, and Ireland... It yeah. never made it across the pond. And out of nowhere, it just disappeared. No one knows No one knows why it disappeared. There's Obviously, there's ideas. Like it's, it, it, there was no restoration. There was no archive, specifically in Australian cinema. Yeah. But the Australian government and most governments of the country that it went to wanted to shut it down because oh. they thought it was glamorising the exploits of criminals. Okay. And there was quite, back in the early 1900s, there was quite a big, like there is in every generation, like media attachment to what was the popular crime at the time. Yeah. And so he'd made this film that was an hour long. No one had seen a film this long. It was basically just watching these bunch of men just like murder, steal. And he toured it around the world and it just went, just disappeared. So do you think there was maybe like some like you know, the the government stepped in and basically just said, let's put an end to That's this. That's what some people think. And some people think it. that Charles Tate destroyed it mm. because why keep it? Yeah. And then some people also think that there was various governments came in and was like, you can't show this anymore. Yeah. And either it's in some vault somewhere, yeah. collecting dust, or it did actually get destroyed. But a little bit like we've been saying, little bits came out about the poster got released, some stills got released. And then they found footage they found about 17 minutes of footage. Do you know how they found it? Nope. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no one knows how it was found. It was just... It probably just showed up. It just showed up. Somewhere. I think it was someone just found it. It's like Metropolis. I think it just turns up. To, well, I mean, that like perfectly relates to like The Passion of Joan of Arc, um, which is a 1928 film. Um, it is by... It is directed all in your head. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's um, directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer. I think I've seen the screenshots from this. Well, it's the the film is very good. I watched it like a few years ago, and it's 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 absolutely amazing. I mean, oh, it exists. Oh well, that's what I was gonna say. the The film was actually episodes about lost films, dude. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it was lost for a while, technically, because it was released, and there was a the uh, French government had like a huge problem with it and wanted to essentially like shut it down. Because of, I guess, the religious themes in the film. Yeah. As well, and like they wanted to just put an end to it. So that 
he released a version of the film and then it was cut down really heavily, similar to Metropolis. It was cut down really, really heavily to like 60 minutes or something like that. Uh, and it's, so essentially there was like versions of it. There was like a second version, a third version that existed. Yeah. And um, much to the director's dismay, because he wanted the film to be in its proper original, raw, like raw. Yeah, like... It's, it's, it's format. Anyway, that dude probably fucking died. <laughs> the, fi- the film ended up, t- it, it turned up in like the weirdest fucking place. It ended up in being found the original cut, by the way, the like original, the, the full original version in Oslo, in an insane asylum. One of the people working in the insane asylum just found the film in one of their storage cupboards for some reason. How the hell did that end up there? I don't know, man. I don't know. It's, the director's it's, gone so insane that he has to cut it down. The yeah. studio come in like, right, cut it down again. It's the sixth time. Well, you don't know. And then it just gets committed. Well, you don't know these things like, 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 to- like, you know, someone probably may- ended up making like a duplicate or something like that. Or like, in, it could, I mean, it's highly unlikely that it's the original master or anything like that. But yeah, it was just found in an insane asylum. And then they were like, okay, we've got the full version of the film. And then it was later released. And, uh, uh, in the years following, there's yeah. a couple of films that like, the film is like fully found now. Fully there's found, no, like, there's no, no. lost footage. To, yeah, there's like, and and I don't know if there's other versions of the film exist, but I don't know why you would want to go to the other versions of the film when you can just go to like the original film. You know what I mean? Is that the uncut recommendation then of the episode? Yes, Passion, Passion of Joan of Arc by uh, <laughs> <laughs> Carl Theodore Dreyer, written by Joseph Deltiel. Deltiel. Well, a lot of films were kind of like cut or destroyed because of religion. Mm. Quite a lot of times, specifically in like the 50s, 60s and 70s, Mm. the church or some sort of religious organization would get involved and be like, there's no fucking way you're making this. Like, it's weird though that they have so much like control and power, like they can just intervene on the film's (laughs) production and... I mean, there's some reasons why it's justified. So when I was researching this, I got really into researching lost porn films. <laughs> and specific, I don't know why it was a segue. I think I was clicking through sources. I ended up on this like 2008 but fuck archive from the internet. Dude, before you start, like, you know, it's so funny, like, like to think that like people would be actually like interested in like, like finding an archive in lost pornography films. Because like, if you think. Like, imagine that, like, 50 million, like, we're just millions of porn films get uploaded to Pornhub every day, right, on the internet. Imagine in 50 okay. years, someone's imagine like, dude, 50, this is Lost Brothers film. Dude, in, in 50 years, do you think there's going to be, like, people who are like, we need to find um, giant hung daddy fucks. <laughs> <laughs> fucks, fucks, I don't know, like... No one at the BFI in 50 years' time is going to be like, we need to find this Riley Reid cut. Yeah, like, like, there's no, going to be no one, like, it's, I, I guess, obviously, like, it's different, but... It's, you know. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's digital, but this film that I found, it's called Him. Him. And Him refers to Jesus. Oh, the man, the myth, the legend. And it's probably the most New York <laughs> porn film I've ever heard in my so life. So it's something to be directed by Andy Warhol? It's an erotic gay porn film. I think it was released in 1974. Starring the man himself, the titular Jesus yeah, Christ character. Jesus. Basically, it was released in 1974 by the looks of it. That's when this I could first find its like actual cinematic release. And that is because in the 70s, Variety magazine used to review porn films. That's so weird, Because porn cinema used to be huge. Like, Deep Throat made tons. Yeah. And this, this film 
started to get a load of criticism. It was directed by a guy called Ed D. Louie, which people used to think for a long time they thought was Edward. Because mm. later in his career, he directed porn under a pseudonym mm. because dude was fucking shit at making normal films. <laughs> yeah. And this film... Glano Glander. Has a guy called mm. Gustav Van, who in his normal life was a muralist. Mm. He painted murals. He played Gay Jesus. Okay. And it's... When did this film come out? 1974. Fuck in New out. York. It is the most 1970s New York gay Jesus. Like he's this... I think people would probably even have a problem with that now. Oh, God, yeah. I think people would probably have a problem with that now. I mean, people had a problem with like any depiction of Jesus yeah, Christ. They had a big like... problem with Mel Gibson's depiction of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I suppose that's for like... Dude did make Jesus metal, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's this scenes in this film where Jesus is like bollock naked like you can see his cock and balls and he's walking along this like some suburbs in New York with a huge cross there's a scene where he's in a confession booth and this guy's giving him this sexual confession and Jesus is just fucking jacking one out oh my god and he's like going for it and he's the going mist, the two mi- Hail Marys my son while well, literally he's about to come <laughs> like the missed an opportunity not calling it Jesus getting nailed <laughs> So it was just called him. There's so many, it could have been like five black dudes nailed Jesus to a cross. Yeah, that's even worse though. If, if they called it that, then that's just like right off the bat. The 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 like the church doesn't even have to see the film at that. No, point. they can they're just like, be like, go fuck yourself. They're like, there is no way that this is gonna be like. This I mean, is gonna. The be church like, hate gay people enough. I think they'd hate yeah. it even more if Jesus was gay. Yeah. But this film is, it's still lost. Mm. But people really want to find it. Like, there's been, like, loads and loads and loads of searches online. Mm. There's there's websites for it. Mm. Like, Whole websites like, dedicated towards in it. In the early 2000s and mid-2000s, there was actual, like, fan websites dedicated to, just find to this finding this gay Jesus porn film. I mean, now it's on... You could go on Pornhub and literally search yeah. gay, Jesus, gay Jesus. And something would come up. But in 2012, stills appeared, which is how we know. I mean, we know about the Jesus jacking off in the confession booth because of Variety magazine... The still of him bollock naked exists walking around New York. Like, and it's... People think that it's in a private New York collection. Which makes me think that at some point Andy Warhol's probably seen it. <laughs> Have you seen it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, dude. I typed in gay Jesus porn film, right? Because I thought, okay, let's find these stills. <laughs> And right, I just went on the images, and it's just loads of fucking gay porn. <laughs> it's just loads but of gay porn. I don't porn. want to see a fucking bear. Dude, look at this one. Oh, for, the, for the people at home, this is um, a man... On a cross. On a cross. Right, trigger warning. This is a man on a cross being with an erect penis. Who is... Um, he's, he's obviously referencing quite uh, tastefully the death of Jesus Christ. And uh, I'd just like to point out the name of this film is Come Before Crucifixion. <laughs> Again, a better name than him. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, let's get off this. Let's get off this. <laughs> Segue away from gay porn. But yeah, no, there's loads of... I'll just not bother looking for this stuff. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> just search him. 1970 porn. Jesus film. Okay. There um, is loads and loads of erotic films made during this period of kind of there was this idea that, like, porn films specifically, uh, porn films that kind of had, like, an almost edginess to it were really popular. Like, the film Deep Throat was, like, 
I think that might have been 1971 or 72, mm-hmm. had a cinematic release. That film was released all over New York and people well, like flocked to see it. Carl, uh, not Carl Lagerfeld. Uh, who's the Playboy dude? Creep. He's a massive Hugh creep. Hefner. Hugh Hefner hosted the after party for the film Deep Throat, which isn't a surprise. But like, and so there was this huge want for stuff like this. But then this guy called Eric D. Louis owned the cinema where it, it got released in March... March 1974 mm-hmm. ran until May mm-hmm. and the guy it turned out that the guy that owned the cinema uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Ed D. Louis mm-hmm. which is my dad and my, my name combined mm-hmm. he basically made it try and make money he thought what could I do that would really piss people off so much that they will actively go and see it mm-hmm. I'll make Jesus get like fucked any, by a dude any publicity is like yeah, it's publicity, just, yeah. yeah. he basically money. tried to and fucked up because people hated it yeah. but the reason I found this is like credit to my source for this is the Golden Turkey by two guys called Henry and Michael Medved, mm. and the Golden Turkey. This book spurned on these awards, which was basically the worst films of the year, and they gave stuff like Planet Nine from Outer Space by Ed Wood. Mm. They said was the worst film ever made. A great film. It's I fucking it. shit. I fucking love it. It's the like they said that was the worst film ever made, and they wrote in the book. It's kind of like the like the the beginning to stuff like The Room. Mm. These films are so bad, but you can watch them from an enjoyment factor. But they must have really, really not liked him (laughs) because they were so angry in this book about the depiction of Jesus specifically in this film that all the other films were like, it's really shit. It's just shit. It's just bad. It's just no... Why? Yeah. But but with this, they were actually angry. And so that's how I found it. And then this book also then spent on the Golden Turkey Awards, which became the anti-Oscars, which name I can never remember. The, uh, was it? I want to call them the Towies, but that's the only way it's mm, that's the, uh, Raspberries? The Razzies. 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 Yeah, it, that spurred the Razzies, basically. Nice. I can't and imagine, that, I can't imagine, like, back in the day, this is kind of, like, not related, but I can't imagine back in the day, like, your only way of viewing porn was, like, having to go to a theatre and, like... Yeah, count ourselves lucky. Jag off, you know what I mean? You'd have to be really single. No, but like I, I don't obviously I don't know what it was like back in like the sixties and seventies, but like, you know, it they showed porn in theaters. So with this, did you just like have to sit in like a booth and just nah, like jack your cock? You just it'd be like imagine if we went. So I was imagine it, if so we went I, to the View or Odeon, and just, there's just like fifty dudes jacking off yeah, to yeah. like the same film. Yeah, communal. We don't have that sense of community anymore. <laughs> Imagine if there's like a guy next to you and you're just like jerking your gurgan and like. And this somehow segues into my next film. Oh my god! And I can't. This is actually like genius level segueing. Say, like segueing. I'm gonna segue right now into my next film, <laughs> A Daughter of the Gods. I just wrote yeah. A Daughter of Gods, but that's wrong. It's from 1916. It's directed by a guy called Herbert Brennan. Herbert Brennan. And it is credited as the first again like I was saying before all these lost films usually have a story behind it mm-hmm. and this was credited as the first US production to cost one million dollars that's a lot of fucking 1916 that's a lot of money yeah that's now worth 19 million Shit. so for back then, that's a fucking lot of money and it, the sets were made of 2,500 barrels of plasters there's 2 million feet of lumber 10 tons of paper the film employed 20,000 people and Brennan shot 44 miles of film and the film ended up being three hours long. So for 1916, and that predates Birth of a Nation by ten years. No, it doesn't. When Birth of a Nation? I think it came out the same year. Did it? Or a year before. Did it? Yeah. Why do I always think it was 1927? Well, have a look. Yeah, just have a look. But the thing about this money, they filmed a bit of it in Jamaica. This film's got... I watched... 
1915. I watched it in a reconstruction format. So, you know, I put it on YouTube and they've got like people explain what's going on, they put stills that exist. Yeah. It's basically what this woman who's similar to like the Turner classics version of like London After Midnight. It's basically this really extravagant film that travels across every continent about this really attractive woman who is an American swimmer who goes uh, Annette Kellerman. She was the famous, like, typical beauty of the time. She was a swimmer. She was very athletic. Yeah. Lots and lots of men get attracted to her. Some men die because they shouldn't be with her. And then she joins, like, a coven of witches, and they bring her lover back from the dead. But that lover was meant to die, so he dies anyway. But she survives. She's also brought back from the dead. Yeah. But the witches make her immortal, and she goes and lives with mermaids. And the reason this film became so, like, famous because it was the first depiction of a nude woman in a film there's a scene in a waterfall where just her hair covers her nipples Uh, so tasteful so quite but still quite raunchy but cool for the time it's raunchy you know a bit in the Simpsons Mm -hmm. when Marge is like doing that pose and she's in a shell yeah that's what this reference is it's the the first ever example of something slightly erotic in a non-erotic film yeah again no footage exists Mm. film disappeared Denny still stills exist. Stills have started to filter through, mm. specifically since like the birth of digital media. Stills have started to appear. People have started to find more stills, and now a lot of stills exist. So that, but that impli- <laughs> that implies that the film exists in some form. Because how could you? I mean, the film has to exist somewhere. But because the re- no, this is what's interesting. Uh, promotional stills are separate to normal stills. Mm. So if you let's say we're making, you know, you're making a film, you're advertising in 1916 you'll make a copy of one specific still from a film and use that for the promotional and blow it up into a bigger format. And that's what survives mm. because they were on paper, which lasts better than the silver nitrate film, which would go up if you just pissed on it. Yeah. Like, so the stills exist. It's why London after midnight, a lot of the stills that exist were promotional. That's why, you know, that Lon Chaney's man in the beaver hat, is what the Babadook is inspired by because mm-hmm. that still specifically exists of him trying to be creepy. Yeah. And it's the same with this film, The Daughter of Gods, where none of the footage exists. It's one of the only like lost films where some footage hasn't been found. Mm. Like, but And people hypothesise because it's so early on, 1916, like... But then some footage of the Kelly gang exists, and that's 1906. Yeah. So they're again, but that's the annoying thing with researching a lot of these films, that you want to find out why it's got lost. And it's like we said at the start, there's three ways a film can become lost. Destroyed on purpose or on accident. Actually lost. Mm-hmm. Or, I just said all three. Destroyed on purpose, destroyed accidentally, lost. Yeah. And in the case of this one, we don't know what three, one of the three it is. Mm. Most other ones you can define by one of those three. Yeah, and but this is the only one where stills exist. But it's the most because it's three hours long. This was the most expensive film at the time, and it just hasn't been archived, hasn't been saved. It's just lost. Mm. No one knows why. No one knows like why it's why it's gone missing. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, like, kind of going off of like the point about like how films, some like little bits of a film could still exist. Yeah. But the 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 whole sum of the film hasn't yet to be found. I mean, like you look at like the the Golem films from the from nineteen fifteen through to nineteen twenty. This is quite interesting actually because the Golem films. So for those at home 
who don't know the golem essentially is a character of jewish folklore um he's like this clay man who essentially uh has been constructed by someone and then comes to life and then comes to life and he and it, i think like the religious undertones of it imply that the, the golem is to free the jewish people or whatever from, from do not quote him on that uh, yeah. this might be wrong <laughs> this could be this could be wrong but the interesting thing about the golem films so in 1915 a golem film is released and i can't actually remember the name of the director oh, for fuck's sake <laughs> <laughs> but in 1915 uh the name of the director by the way is actually it's two people again it's carl uh Bowes. Bose, I guess, B O E S E, and Paul Wegner, and um, great pronunciation. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Um, and essentially, the and it, I know for a fact it was the same set of directors as well for all three films. All three films. You know, from from the from the information that exists, but in nineteen fifteen, uh, a golden film was released. And only some footage exists of this original Golden film. Like we're talking, like probably about three minutes worth of footage exists. Is this from all three, or just from the? No, first? just from the first three minutes of footage exists, and the the footage basically consists of like what you see is the Golem is alive and he has a knife through the center of his his torso, like kind of like just like where his chest is. He has a knife and he's kind of walking around and he's scaring all the townspeople in 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 like Prague. Yeah, uh, and that's all exists of the film. It's essentially just shots. Of How do people. they do the golem? The go. It's actually a really fucking cool design. It's like a. Um, I mean, like I don't know. I guess I could just rather show you a picture, but it's kind of like this kind of goofy, goofy looking dude. A lot of like the horror films back then, they were like referencing Lon Chaney again. His man in the beaver hat from London After Midnight was not scary. The dude looked like a clown. You see this guy, right? That is actually pretty good. Yeah, for the people at home, he's kind of got like this, like, uh, bob cut almost cut into him. Uh, he's wearing like really baggy clothes, and he's got what looks to be a star of David right in the center yeah. of his of his chest. Um, so only a few minutes exist of this nineteen fifteen golden film. Jewish superhero. He essentially is like a Jewish superhero. Um, then there was a sequel released, which could have people have said that it could be a parody of the original film, which is called The Golem and the Dancing Girl, which was released in 1917. Um, this film is completely lost. Nothing remains. Nothing remains, other than a couple posters. Like, that's it. People know of the film's existence, but people, like, there's no proper archived footage, stills, or anything yeah. from the film. It's good at this point to say as well that the reason that we know that a lot of the directors are attached to these films is because the archives exist. Yeah, films. yeah, it's because, it's because like, you know, it's, it's kind of like common nods. There's also the posters too, it features the director's yeah. name on it and stuff like that. Um, but the third film, um, which I think it's called something like the, like the, the, it's like an origin story. It's a prequel, technically. The Birth of Golem. It, it literally is something like <laughs> the Birth of Golem. It li- it's something like that. <laughs> it's like the Golem's, the start of the Golem or something like that. The, the dawn of Golem. The, the impetus of Golem. Um, this film from 1920 is found. It, 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 it's not even found. It exists. It just never got lost. It never got lost, yeah. 
and because this film is a prequel it's about the the golem the golem's origin story essentially um people kind of like really you know kind of forget about the 1915 one and obviously the 1917 one the golem and the dancing girl is gone so people don't know about that either so really kind of people's knowledge of the golem is a character in film form it really kind of starts with the nineteen twenty, yeah, Golem. the birth of Golem. We'll just call it that. The nineteen twenty Golem film. You know, the Golem films as well. Essentially, is kind of like the almost kind of the first ever sort of like movie um, universe in a way. Technically, it's like it's like they have sequels. I mean, the you same had the character. death and birth of Superman. Yeah, you've got like it's honestly it's the same as like Marvel films now. You know, I'm looking at that picture of the Golem. Yeah, is that blackface? Um, it's definitely riding the line. I'll, I'll tell you that. Much. I'll tell you that much. It's riding the line. <laughs> he's <kicking. laughs> I guess I don't know. I, I know think it might mean. be. Well, he's made out of clay. Yeah, I guess he's meant to so be clay. He has to be. He can't has hire to. a clay actor. Yeah, you can't. Like, it's impossible. You have to put him in some sort of makeup. So it's not really. Like, no, it's not really like you know, blackface no. or anything. Thanos like wasn't purple face. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I've referenced super Superman films and, and Marvel quite a lot. Yeah. And I don't know why. Yeah, well, so I've put a record that I'm not the biggest Marvel fan. Yeah, on the Uncut podcast, we don't talk about Marvel films. All my homies hate Marvel films. <laughs> yeah, some of them are good. That's some some of them are alright. Maybe we should do in a future episode. We should do like a Marvel showdown and rank all the Marvel films. What from like bad to worse? Yeah. And obviously, Thor two would be at the top. Thor 2 is great. Thor the, the Dark, Dark World. World. I think that's, that's like Citizen Kane of our time. Oh, fuck off. You got Shut the fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> Who the fuck invited this guy? But yeah, the Golem films, essentially like the, the first ever cinematic universe of sorts. And um, the, the, the first one exists in some form, just small clips. Second one, completely gone. Third one, fully exists. But people seem to take it as the first, the third one being the only one that matters because it's yeah, an because story. it's an origin story, so people kind of kind of know what to... the first one's made of because the third one explains yeah, it. it's stuff like that yeah. yeah, so it'd be kind of like with Star Wars. Yeah, so you good. could say George Lucas was inspired by the Golem. I guess you could. I mean, you'd have to talk to him. Um, we should just try and get him on as a guest at some point. He's also sponsoring this episode. So thank <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, George yeah. Lucas, Kirk Douglas, and George Lucas. Thank, thank you, you very much, Lucas Film. For sponsoring this episode, uh, we do have another sponsor to mention at the end. In 20 years, there's going to be... Uh, uh, Copyright strike on us. No, no, I was going to say in 20 years, there's going to be a special edition of this episode where there's going to be a bunch of added CGI <laughs> to make the enhance the so, film. He's made me look like a giant ugly slug. <laughs> you can't keep his fucking hands off shit, man. No, no, you can't. I mean, you t- we mentioned, we've mentioned, I mean, you talk about lost films... And I know this is kind of like scattered, going from one to another. Mm-hmm. Metropolis was like well, I think we that need was to like talk the about wet Metropolis. dream. I think we need to talk about like Metropolis. Roger Ebert did a specific post in two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. which announced the finding of the full Metropolis, and like that's how much like you, you I can imagine like Roger Ebert finding it out and literally creaming his undies on the spot. <laughs> like that's how much people wanted to find Metropolis though, and like but the story behind. Finding Metropolis is actually kind of dumb. Like, for people that don't know, 1927, directed by Fritz Lang, mm-hmm. the godfather of classic. all great cinema, also it's did classic. M. If you haven't seen Metropolis, then... That's our second recommendation. 
what the hell are you doing? Yeah. What but also, if you haven't, you it's not your fault. Just go watch it. I'm yeah, not going to sit here and criticise you for not watching yeah, it. you got to go ahead and watch it, you know? You should go ahead and watch it. Mm. But also, if you don't want to, I'd recommend M over Metropolis, personally. M's great. M's much better, in my opinion. But it was partially complete. It was estimated that two-thirds of the film existed. It was because of bad reviews, wasn't it? it was, it's kind of less so because of bad reviews, but like, I guess in a sense you could say it's because of bad reviews, but people didn't think it would be sellable. The upper echelons of the studio, the execs and stuff. Back in did a, they know? Well, what the fuck did they ever know? Yeah, they didn't think it would sell, so they basically got Fritz Lang and whoever edited it, whose name I have no idea, to chop it. And they chopped it down and it released. And... For 80 years, 81 years, that didn't exist. Until in 2008, this woman in Argentina called Paula Felix, who was the president of the Museo del Cine, which is the Museum of Cinema, in Argentina got started to get hearsay from this film club in Argentina that the showing that they put on of Metropolis was too long. So they basically heard from a friend, from a friend, from a friend, that this film club screened Metropolis and they were like god this is so long this has gone on for so long and so they went and checked it out and realised I don't remember Metropolis being 300 minutes long (laughs) they basically went down to this film club you know with all the people the archivists the people that could you know check it out because the scripts exist Mm -hmm. you know what the extra they they knew kind of what the extra third existed of yeah and so they went down and watched it and was like fuck me we have it like we found it. Metropolis. From from what I've gathered, though, like from like research and just like you know, basic understanding through the eyes, there was like multiple restored versions. There was quite a few. So they found like bits and pieces, and it was slowly pieced together was, through the eyes. Yeah. I, I don't quote me on that because I'm not entirely like fully sure. It was like, like bits and bo- an extra minute or so would turn up in Prague, an extra minute or so would turn up in Chile, because the film at the time was so really heavily advertised for the time now obviously not but so people knew that there was other versions of it and this version of it the full version found its way to Argentina in 1928 Mm. and got sold to a film collector which and then it ended up in an archive for 60 years Mm. and then the film club basically went to the archive and was like can we put on Metropolis and they were like yeah just don't burn it (laughs) and then they just found it it just got found like, that's that's how a lot of these things just turn up. They end up just like like similar to what we're seeing about like Passion of Joan of Arc, found in a mental institution. You know, like just yeah. they, these films just end up like showing up because someone, somewhere down the line, made a copy of it and just like threw it in their basement or something like that, and it just, it just sat there. Yeah, yes. I mean, around the same time, the interesting thing about the Argentina one, it still missed a couple minutes. Mm. They say, though, that the film is pretty much like 95%. The, they found another copy in, in New Zealand. Oh. So basically, this film was filmed in Germany, the middle of Europe. Mm-hmm. And then it found its way to two opposite ends of the world. The Argentina one made it 95% done. And then the New Zealand one added on a little bit more, and they just edited the two together. Mm-hmm. And that's Metropolis you can now buy on DVD. Which is the essential version yeah, that you need to watch. It's probably missing a couple of minutes, but that's what happens with films. Like, yeah. But that's how they found Metropolis. And it's like, Roger Ebert posted this post about how it's like the greatest day for cinema because what many people revere as one of the greatest films ever made Yeah, is finally in its completion. It's finally here, yeah. I mean, we're like 22 
bordering on 23, so we didn't know what it was like, obviously. We watched Metropolis in its full completion. The film is still really astounding. To this yeah. To this I don't agree. It got colorized. <laughs> yeah. Which doesn't look great. It, it doesn't. I mean, when do colorizations ever look great? Like, I'm not sure if you ever saw it, but do, do you know the, the um, Lon Chaney, who's coming up again? Lon Chaney, Phantom of the Opera film? Yeah. That was colorized in, like, people. what Not like an official colorization, sort of like a fan yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, but loads of efforts have been made to like colorize that and stuff like that. And you just think like, what's the point, you know? Yeah, but like, asked. it interesting actually about Phantom of the Opera. <coughs> um, the nineteen twenty five version, by the way, uh, the the Lon Chaney version. That which, might have been Todd Browning as well, actually. Uh, I don't know. We'll have a look. But that um, that film, which in my opinion features. Some of the best makeup that Lon Chaney ever did, and he did it himself. Uh, yeah, he did always it himself. did it himself. Uh, th- it was actually directed two directors again, uh, Rupert Julian and Lon Chaney. Oh, Lon Chaney directed it. Lon Chaney probably directed, I guess. Oh. Yeah. So it was like a, it was like a fifty-fifty split. Um, you don't know it was a fifty. Oh, hold on, actually, hold on. This is this this is nineteen thirty. Sorry. I might be getting mixed up. So that no, no, sorry, it's uh, it's the same. It's Rupert Julian Lon Chaney. It's just that's actually Google's fault, not mine. Um, Google's not a researcher. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the Phantom of the Opera that has a really really interesting story actually. Phantom of the Opera, the original version, and you probably, like obviously, it's not a lost film. Technically speaking, it's not a lost film. Yeah. You can watch the film. There was a. Blu-ray version that was released a few years ago as well, that like the restored it and everything, added a new soundtrack. You know, looks amazing. Like they cleaned up all of the, all of the little like dirt yeah. bits and the spits and spats and stuff like that, and they completely got rid of it. And it just looks amazing. Is that the technical term? That's the technical the term. Spits yeah. and spats. Spits and spats. Um, and it just looks absolutely fantastic. Um, but that film has a really interesting backstory because they did a test version. Uh, of the film screened it for audiences and audiences like hated it they thought it was like you know, you know I guess I don't know I don't know what their opinions were because it's a great film but they must have just not really vibed with it then they did a re-edit version the re-edit also didn't really fare well with audiences <laughs> then the film was edited into a final version so the re-edit and the one that was initially shown so the first edit, so the first edit and then the second edit, they're both lost. Pretty much completely lost. The final version, which obviously contains footage from both the original and yeah, the yeah. re-edit, obviously, because it's using the same, you know, source. Yeah. Um, so the final version was released in 1925. The film, which was met with a lot of praise from critics and stuff like that, and audiences really liked it, it was a smash hit. Then, when the talkies came about, so obviously this is like the early 1930s, like late 20s, early 30s, yeah. and the talkies came about, they re-released the film with scenes that contained talking. Lon Chaney died in 1930, just before, just as the talkies were getting big. So Lon Chaney was the king of the silent Yeah, era. he was, non-comedy-wise, he was yeah, one of the big... Yeah, he was the king of the silent era, and he died with the silent era. He never saw the talkies become a huge thing. Probably a good thing. Not a man dying, but obviously, you know, he's so synonymous with silent film that he could... Yeah, I mean, a lot yeah. of silent films are 
Bond and talking film. They couldn't like adapt to the, the new way. I'm not an actor. I don't have a fucking clue. But, but no, they're like the silent actors were always extremely like like Buster Keaton and stuff. They were extremely theater, expressive. Really. Yeah, they were really expressive, and they they had to emote and connote emotions, you know, purely through movement and through actions. Yeah. And they had to just emote in a certain way that where like you didn't have to do that with talkies. Um. But anyway, so this new version of Phantom of the Opera comes out in the I don't actually know the year but it's like the early 30s and stuff uh, which adds scenes where he's talking but then all the scenes with Lon Chaney still have title cards because obviously he couldn't come back and yeah. dub he couldn't dub his scenes over and stuff so what's interesting is that in the 1950s there was a couple versions that were released there was like a new restored version which was so, shown in cinemas and then there was a 16mm, like, show-at-home print. Yeah. In the show-at-home print, in the new restored version, the new restored What do you mean show-at-home print? Show-at-home print, essentially, it's like... So, it for 16mm film, right, that was a medium that people could take home and put in their projectors at home. Oh, so you had to so have... So, like it's, like, it's, like, early, like, form of, like... like Not uh, accessible, though. It's like, just, you had to have a projector No, I mean, you'd run. be surprised. It's, like, home distribution. Like, oh, back in the day, obviously, you know, video wasn't a thing. DVDs, no. obviously, wasn't a thing. Like, streaming is, like, yeah, it's <laughs> been a thing. You know what I mean? So, like... You couldn't watch Phantom of the Opera on Netflix. No, yeah, you couldn't do any of that. So, you had to have a projector in the, the best-looking format. You know, 8mm was a little too, like... Shit. DIY, yeah, yeah. Uh, Thirty millimeters too expensive. Too big as well. Sixty millimeter is the print to go with because it's you know it's it's decent looking. It's fairly cheap at the time. So at the time they distributed kind of these limited run of like four home releases yeah. where you could take a sixty you could buy a sixty millimeter print, put it on your projector, and projecting you and your family could sit there and watch Phantom of the Opera. Set the house up in flames. Yeah, yeah, and um. But what was interesting about these two different versions of the films is that they actually had it was the same sh- like scenes, but they had slightly different shots. <laughs> slightly different shots. What was interesting is at the time, it essentially was like two different takes of the same scene. So you'll notice, you know, I wish obviously we could show this in sort of video form, but you can notice that when you when you compare the two side by side you can see that the certain difference of the camera's just a little bit different yeah. from the other version. So, like, the camera's just placed it a bit different. The, like, the acting's... So, they're different takes, clearly. Um, but what was interesting is that in recent times, there's been versions that essentially are, like, Frankensteins of all of the different versions. Mash them all together. Yeah, and there's the film opens with a scene of this dude with, like, a like an oil lamp. Yeah, he's clearly opening his mouth and he's like talking, which implies that it comes from the new talkie added talkie scenes. The talkie cut. The talkie cut, yeah. And he's like talking, but the thing is, it's silent. There's no talking. It has talkie scenes in the film. Has talkie scenes in, but this scene doesn't have any sound. But then they dubbed over bits where people's mouths weren't moving. Yeah, that's the thing, right? But. People have been speculating a lot because this opening scene with the dude with the oil lamp, <clears throat> because of the film grain and the way that it's shot, like the 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 quality of the the film, it looks so similar to the original cut. But that's the thing. People are like, "Well, this looks like it could be a talkie scene," but it, it looks so it's so akin to the the original cut yeah. with the way that it's like you know, been kept and stuff like that because a lot of the talkie scenes are in decent nick because this is like the 1930s and 
you know, film uh, preservation was still wasn't great, but it was badder. They'd take, by the 1930s, I believe they'd taken silver nitrate out. No, of, actually, in the 1950s. Was it 50? No, no, it was um, late 40s. They made um, something that's just kind of called, I think it's just literally called safety film, which is essentially film that doesn't contain silver nitrate. It so it's not flames. I it, it's I think it's still combustible, but it's not as easily combustible because obviously silver nitrate, like we were saying, it's like, a bomb. <laughs> yeah. Well, the uh, I think we're obviously talking about the MGM um, vault fire. There was another one which was Fox. They had a fire in the nineteen thirty seven, I believe, and it was caused literally just from it being too hot. Really? Yeah. The temperature was just like a little bit too hot. And one of them caught fire, and then obviously the vault fire happened and stuff like that. So they invented this safety film in the 1940s, um, which you know attempted to curb that problem of of you know. Film. You've always had that, but that film, that problem, even though they got rid of silver nitrate, like film burning up <coughs> carried on. Oh, it's you can still happen. Like film, it's the the, the actual material of it though is still flammable. You'd have to set a light to it, but it's, it's still so, flammable. It's so different now, though. Like it's yeah. so different that like with the way that films are kind of like, you know, the way that people make copies of films now and the way like digital media and stuff like that. and It's, it's a just, choice now to use film. Yeah, and it's, with the prim, film preservation is different. Like if you shoot on film, you've, you're probably like the one that you distribute to theatres is not the original copy at all. It'll be digitised. Exactly, it's digitised. You know, if you're sending out like a 70 millimeter print, that's a copy of it, you know what I mean? I mean we like, saw Reanimator. In the thirty five millimeter. In thirty five millimeter and that was actual a thirty five millimeter cut yeah. of that film. Looked like shit. But it's you know, it's, it's more than likely a copy. I mean like the Yeah, idea, it won't be the original the idea of sending out a master tape of a film. But you know, then even then it doesn't matter because if the original tape of you know, if the original film stock of Reanimator got lost, you know, like who gives a fuck? There's, yeah, a, there's million a million copies, copies of it. Like, film, find it on one two three movies. Exactly, the film's on DVD. It's on fucking like it's on one two three movies. Like you said, like it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, we don't use one two three movies. We don't. Yeah, we don't advocate piracy ever. Ever. You need to buy your films. <laughs> you need to. Yeah. You need to buy your films always. If you use Pirate Bay. Stop fucking listening yeah, right fuck now. Fuck yourself. Fuck you. If you use pirate bay, you're you. a... You're a fascist. <laughs> that's all I've got to say. And that's our stance on that. That is our stance on that. We've mentioned Lon Chaney too much. So I'm going to mention his son. <laughs> Lon on, Chaney then. Jr. Go on then. Lon Chaney Jr. And this segues into talking Great about... Actor. This sort of segues into talking about Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. As well, who's Edward? Was he involved in an Edward production? Maybe, Ooh. perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> Basically, Ed. Most of Edward's films are dog shit. I mean, do you know what? Right now, all of Edward Wood's films, Edward Junior. This uh, is they're fucking crap. Plan Nine from Outer Space is pretty good. Like, yeah, but you like Mr. Deeds? Of course, Mr. Deeds is great. He the best had remake a, in history. He had a load of films that went missing. The Undergraduate. It's not a sequel to The Graduate. <laughs> Take it out in trade. It would be a prequel, wouldn't it? The, the, the undergraduate. Yeah, but that'd become illegal. <laughs> <laughs> he had a film called Necromania, which was lost, but it was discovered in a yard sale oh in God. 1992. Of all things. And he had an erotic film called The Young Mermaid, which was discovered in 2004. 
And you can now buy that on DVD as part of the Lost Sex Films of Edward Boxer. Lost, it's called Lost Sex Films. The Lost, the lost Sex Films of Edward Jr. Boxer. What a title. What a title. But the rumours, there were rumours... Gonna have to get my that, hands on that. <laughs> bit of late night viewing. There were rumours that Edward had shot footage of Lon Chaney Jr. as a werewolf. And it was used in Jerry Warren's face of screaming, the face of the screaming werewolf. The dude was Ed Wood was absolutely obsessed with the Universal horror movies because obviously he got Boris, um, not Boris Karloff, sorry, Bella Lugosi. You know, Bella Lugosi worked on a lot of his earlier films as well, and Bella Lugosi's son claimed that Ed Wood used Bella Lugosi and profited off him when he was in a really bad part of his period, mm. a really bad part of his career. Yeah. But then, a lot of people actually say that Ed Wood and Bella Lugosi were very close friends. So, I mean, if you watch the film Edward by uh, Tim Burton, starring Johnny Depp, which is a really great film, it's a really good film. You get the sense. Obviously, it's you know elevated. It's not like it's a film. It's, it's Tim Burton as well. It's fictitious, yeah. I mean, but like you kind of obviously get the sense that they had a close kinship with one another. Yeah, stuff, they definitely. I I believe they got along. I mean, Bella Lugosi when he met Edward was going through that period. He had morphine addiction. He was he took morphine to deal with an illness that he had. Which I do not know the name of, but it began with an S. So, like as well, though, like with Bella Lugosi at that time, obviously, you know, he probably, you know, he was, I guess, in some regards, he was like a shadow of his former self. Yeah, he wasn't the same Bella Lugosi that was in, you know. The but of all people to 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 choose, because usually, obviously, you know, it's an age old thing, like just picking when you're at a stage where you're washed up as a celebrity and you just pick jobs for the sake of just making a bit of cash. Edward's not one to pick. Edward of all people, you know what I mean? Like, I refuse to believe that Edward was the only one who was coming to Bella Lugosi and saying, look, do you want to make a film? No, Bella Lugosi had a lot of people coming to him to do films, but he also had a lot of people coming to do it. It's like, kind of comparable to Orson Welles' career. You know, the dude was fucking drunk out of his head doing adverts. Yeah. That's kind of similar to what they wanted Bella Lugosi to do. So Edward came to him with films. And, he was and Bella Lugosi was like, Yash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's how he kind of sounded. Yeah. But yeah, that's kind of like my uh, my bit on Edward because all of his films, like, he destroyed films. He gave them away. But I mean, Edward went through, like, the dude thought he was a genius. Like, and he could not understand for the life of him why people didn't like his fucking films. Glenn O'Glender is a classic, man. <laughs> what is your affinity with Ed Wood? Yeah. <laughs> I think he's underrated, I think. I think Glenn O'Glender is like, the same way that people love the Shags, you know, the band that Kurt Cobain used to talk about all the time, the Shags, and they were like really shit. Do you know what you mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. And he like wore a t-shirt of him, similar to when he wore a t-shirt of like Daniel Johnston stuff, and everyone was like, "Oh, I guess the listener to Daniel Johnston's pretty cool now." You know what I mean? Listener to Daniel Johnston's always been cool. Like an Ed Wood is yeah, like bro. a proper like. Yeah, Martin Scorsese is pretty good, but I prefer the uh, filmography of Ed Wood. Mm. It's just shit. It is shit, but it's shit in a likable way. Yeah, he destroyed. You can't, I get what you mean. Yeah. Like he destroyed a ton of his films. And a lot, like we mentioned at the start, you're destroying your film was a very common practice if someone didn't like a film. And the, the Marx Brothers did it quite regularly mm. because they were kind of true savants when it came to what they did. And they were part of, like, you know, you had the five Marx Brothers, mm-hmm. Groucho, one, two, three, four, and five. <laughs> Groucho and the other ones. Groucho and the other ones. 
And so basically, they did this film called Humorisk in 1921, mm-hmm. which what it, it it wasn't the beginning. They d- it wasn't the type of comedy that they became synonymous for. It was more of an uh, like more of like a crime comedy caper, mm-hmm. where two of the Marx Brothers were trying to get this girl. One of them got the girl. Girl died. They all came together, solved it. It was like 21 minutes long, and basically, there's two stories of it. Either it was left at a screening box overnight, yeah, and then someone stole it. Well, Groucho Marx hated it so much that he put it in a bin fire. I think the latter is probably more true. Yeah, because the film itself isn't good. It got pretty fucking panned at the time. There's rumours about who starred in it. There's four different women that could be the leading role. There's Jobiana Ralston, Mildred Davis, who was married to Harold Lloyd. Mildred Davis, that's like the most like old-fashioned sounding name for a woman. Well, she later married Harold Lloyd. Who was like the third silent comedian behind Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin? Chaplin. And then (laughs) there's these websites, one called Marxology, which kind of sounds like if Karl Marx is obsessed with mixology, Mm. and then opened a bar (laughs) and called it Marxology. Marxology. And another one called Silent Era. They claim that it could have been either Esther Rolson, who's another Rolston, or Helen Kane. But they. I believe that Groucho Marx was so fucking unhappy with this film. Because that is also the film that started to... They, it pushed them into what people became accustomed to when you thought of the Marx Brothers. And yeah. Specifically Groucho Marx. Was that slapsticky... What's it called? A duck soup or something like that? Yeah, it's, it's got a very specific uh, name to it. Yeah, it does. But I think that's where we should end the episode. <laughs> right, if your dad died, <laughs> okay. who would you want an actor to take over as the role of your dad? Mm, who would want, like, an actor daddy? Yeah, an actor daddy. <clears throat> um, ooh, it's a real tough one. I'd want someone who is, like, you know, really loving. Alive. Alive and loving. Not that my real dad isn't loving. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but um, someone, someone who's like really like who's kind of like you know like full like, void like a real <laughs> he's like a real dad figure you know um, probably uh, Jimmy Stewart Jimmy Stewart uh, he is dead but like he can't be dead oh well they will let it happen in this like, come on yeah he lived really like a really long time I think he died like in the nineties or something all right just because he has that kind of like ah oh, Mary ah. Oh. Ah, oh, so voice in his Dude, are you doing a Joker impression? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about that, Batman? The thing about pee pee timers that are Right, I think we should end it on that. Yeah, yeah, let's On our Joker impression. It took us one episode to do a Joker impression. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'd like to thank. Uh, let's do a couple of mentions. I'd like to thank Kirk Douglas for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, that was really nice of him. Oscar Corbishley. Um, he also sponsored the episode. He really did, nice he did, thank you. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, the British Film Institute for making my latest film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd really like to thank... Uh, Which is a gay Cap- porn, by the way. Yeah, I'd really like to thank Nino DiCaprio for matching me on Grindr. And that's it, and that's, I think that's all my thanks. Okay. And thanks to my parents. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>